Welcome to And With Your Spirit, a homily podcast that takes preaching out of the sanctuary and moves it into your daily life. Let us make ourselves open to the voice of Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit, that we might be transformed. Hello and welcome to the And With Your Spirit podcast. I am Father Tyler Tenbarge, and today I am sitting with Deacon Dan Niemeyer to hear about his vocation story. Welcome, Deacon Dan. Thank you, Father Tyler. It's a pleasure and an honor to be asked to be here with you today. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Let's start with an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providence, bringing all things together for your good. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit upon us as we sit and talk, that you may bring to light the things that you long for us to see and that you long for your church to hear. We ask that you send your Spirit to guide us into all things well. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're sitting in the St. Joseph attic at the House of Discernment on the west side of Evansville again, our common place now for doing our interviews. It's got good acoustics, I think, and it's also just a really cool place. And so we're actually, it's a very snowy day. And so we're enjoying the view and sitting down. I've got a cup of tea, which is what helps with my voice because it's not the most smooth, my producer tells me. I won't hold that against him. And we are here to talk about Deacon Dan Niemeyer and his story. So, Dan, can you just kind of give us a little bit of a background on when were you born, where'd you grow up, your family, and that kind of stuff first? Sure. Love to do that. I consider myself a lifelong West Sider, although technically I was actually born in New Albany, Indiana. My parents were both employees of Indiana Bell or the telephone company. My dad happened to be transferred over to New Albany for a short period of time, and it was during that time that I was born. And was there a few months, don't really know even exactly how long, but it wasn't long. And then we came back to Evansville. So since that time, grew up on the west side, close to Resurrection Parish, and haven't ventured too far away from that area other than going to college, but spent my my entire life here on the west side. How many siblings were in your family? I have an older sister, one year older, and a brother that's a couple years younger than I am. So middle child. Great. Oldest boy, though. I'm also, I've got one older sister and an oldest boy in my family. Okay. Tell us about high school and college. I went to Resurrection grade school and then moved to modern day high school. That was a no-brainer decision. That's, that's what Catholics on the West Side did during that time and had a great experience there. I enjoyed sports and I enjoyed being in student government. I was a, a mediocre athlete, I guess, at best. I was very small as a freshman. I wrestled 98 pounds. And so my athletic career wasn't anything stellar, but I did enjoy the participation and made a lot of great friends and felt like a part of a community. And that, that enabled me to, to kind of find my way a little bit there at Modern Day and also, again, involved in some of the student government activities and uh, things like that. So it was a very good experience there at Modern Day. Loved it. And it was very formative for my future years. Of course, yeah. So and I, I failed to mention this at the beginning. Uh, Deacon Dan Niemeyer serves as the president now of Modern Day High School. So he came back as an alumnus to help uh, kind of serve the community for, for Modern Day. Um, as he said, it's, it was a no-brainer back in the day for a Catholic high schooler to go to Modern Day High School. And I would still say it's probably a no-brainer today, too, because uh, you can't find a better school over here. Um, sports, academics, faith, life, community, uh, the alumni base, the family being involved. Anyway, so... Uh, just a little plug there for the high school, for all those who are listening who are out there who go there. Appreciate that plug. During high school, what was your faith life like? I'd say that during high school, I was committed to my faith. I didn't think intentionally about it much. It was just 
something that we did. We went to church, went to mass uh, very regularly, enjoyed and participated in activities related to the church. But as I look back and think about what were my real faith formation activities during that time, I, I can't pinpoint anything to say this is what I was intentionally doing to really develop my faith. There, there probably were things that I've maybe now forgotten 40 years later, but it was always important to me. And I always knew that, you know, going to mass and uh, living my faith in the way that I knew it at the time made sense. Didn't have as many options presented in terms of retreats and things like that. So it just continued to happen naturally without a lot of intentionality, but but it, it did at least stick and didn't ever really stray away from that, even through my college years. So you're saying that you you never wandered away from the church, right? But you also didn't do anything out of the ordinary. Like many Catholics, you went to Mass on Sunday and did your daily prayers as you should and went to the pendant services for school, but nothing maybe stuck out. I think that's a very good way to describe it. Yeah, I had good relationships with some of the priests there at Modern Day, like Father Her and others and Sister Donna Marie and we had a lot more presence of of nuns at Modern Day and had good relationships with them. Some that I still feel close to with Sister Jane Michelle, Sister Donna Marie, and and it's actually Sister Donna Marie that that planted the first vocation seed for me. With something I'll never forget, I was in the student government as I mentioned, and I had to go with Sister Donna Marie to the bank to sign, get my name on checks or something like that, and we were driving towards Franklin Street. And I still we recall right where we were at when she said, you know, I think you would make a good priest someday. And it took me quite by shock and, <laughs> and not something I had ever thought about before. And I think I stammered through some response about, well, I, I, that's, I appreciate the comment, but I wanted to be a father someday. And that's about the extent of, that I recall of the conversation other than to know that that was that first seed. And I've mentioned to Sister Donna Marie since that time, given her credit for that and apologizing for never becoming a priest, but hopefully this <laughs> becoming a deacon did uh, meet that objective that she had to some extent. Yeah. So, so was that the first time you ever heard someone say something to you about a priestly vocation like that, that you're in your memory? In my memory, it certainly is. Now, there were perhaps, you know, maybe in grade school, a priest might have said something. I was an altar server and like a lot of young men, and but none that were as impactful. So if it was mentioned, I sure didn't take it very seriously at that time. Yeah, so. Yeah. so what made it impactful? Was it the person who was asking you in the car? Was it, like, was it because it was sister and you had a relationship with her or, or because she was a sister? Or was it because it was just the two of you or was it because you were in a position of kind of leadership or trust helping you out with this? Can you pin anything down there? I think it's difficult to pin anything specific down. I guess the one thing it was that does come to mind is that it was a compliment that she would think of me in that light, that she could see something in me that I perhaps didn't see myself that were some qualities that would make for a good priest and, you know, was very complimentary. Then I felt that it was that she saw that in me. So I guess that's what it was, her seeing something that I didn't see in myself or had never thought about it, my, myself in that way. Interesting. So it was the combination of her, her noticing, right? But then also her saying, here's what God could be using in you to be a priest in the church, if you were called to that, right? Yeah. And probably didn't even give it, unfortunately, that much thought at yeah, the yeah, time sure, is sure, the problem. Sure. But well, you were uh, a high schooler. Yeah. That's right. I was a high schooler. And I was, but there was something going on there. And I guess, it, obviously, it stuck with me enough that it meant a lot. And it coming from her, who I had a lot of respect for, and I still do, and 
So that did make it even more impactful. So sister told you, I see these qualities in you that, that can make you a good priest, right? So if you hear a call, make sure you answer it. That doesn't mean that she thinks you should be one, right? Nor does that mean that God is calling you. And I'm, I'm saying kind of this as more as to the listeners out there that are parents or young men or whomever. When someone brings up a vocation, it's not because you therefore need to go and be that. Sometimes just hearing the compliment of, I can see what God gave you that could be for God's uses, then attaching a vocation to it like priesthood, right? Gives it a landing spot, but be more important is the, I see gifts in you that God made, and I see a place for them in the church. Maybe those two things are actually just as powerful as saying, have you ever thought about marriage or diaconate or religious life or whatever, right? Because I don't think we do that enough for our kids. I think that's a great point, and it's it's one that I haven't given a lot of thought to of the impact that perhaps I could have if I were the one on the end of providing that kind of feedback to young men or young women and being intentional about pointing that out to them. Because even my own sons, I, I can't say that I ever had that conversation with them, unfortunately, as <laughs> looking back, that I, I never recall telling them that I saw any of those kind of qualities in them. Maybe it was caught up in the culture of the day of thinking of how they might be deemed successful and still trying to provide for them. And definitely I recall thinking along the lines while they were growing up about, am I doing what I need to to help them form their faith and planting some seeds? But I I don't think I intentionally did that. And looking back is something that perhaps I should have done better as a father. Well, and and we all could could do better at all those kinds of things, right? And as, as you were speaking, what I was thinking, I was like, it's almost just like a lens we never put into our glasses frame, right? Like we, we wear the lenses of how do I help my kids be successful in school and get good grades or be in the honors classes? How do I get them to be in scholarship or get good scholarships to go to a good university? Or how do I help them get better at sports or be in better student clubs or whatever we know they're involved in? We have all those kind of thoughts, but we just never put the, and those are good thoughts. Like God wants us to, if we're good at basketball, to play basketball well. And God wants us, if we're good at dancing or ballet, to do that well too. But he also wants us to, to do things that are more specifically spiritual, right? Not just a secular. And so I think it's maybe sometimes it's just that as you were speaking, that's what I was thinking. I was like, it's like having a pair of glasses and you put the frames in of like the secular world of grades and success in the worldly sense. But we sometimes forget to put the lens in sometimes too of saying, what is an offering to build the kingdom here that's beyond the wrestling or the math or whatever, right? So Right. And I, I like to think that I've matured spiritually beyond where I was even as a father and now as a grandfather, that I can impart that on my grandchildren and others that I interact with at at modern day. So that's a lesson that I'll learn, I hope. So you went to modern day high school and you had good formation there. And you said you went to college next. I went to Purdue University. And as I look back, my parents hadn't gone to college. And I can't say that I got the most effective guidance, even at modern day, to, to chart my career path. But my cousin actually went to Purdue, and um, he was a senior in college while I was a senior in high school. So I was influenced by his being there and going to visit him uh, at one point, and somehow ended up at Purdue without a lot of, again, intentionality of how that progressed. But it ended up being a great opportunity and a, and a, a great choice for me. So uh, going up there, I had been a good student in high school, did well in math and sciences. And so without, again, having a lot of, of great idea of exactly what I was going to do, I knew enough to know, okay, engineering is a good field for 
kids that are strong in math and the sciences. So I chose that as an engi- as a degree and majored in chemical engineering, even though I didn't really love chemistry. But I, I guess the thing there was I was aware enough that chemical engineers, it was one of the more rigorous disciplines of engineering, kind of like that challenge. And then also they were being paid probably best of all yeah, the yeah. engineers at the time. So that probably weighed into it a bit, but made that decision to go that route and, and was exposed to through some guys that I lived with about opportunity to go to school while also working in a work situation called cooperative engineering uh, education. So I went to school at Purdue, studied for a semester, came back, uh, actually got a job with Me Johnson Nutrition here, and, in Evansville. here in Evansville. So was able to come back home every other semester and do a work experience, had five work terms with, uh, with Me Johnson, get exposed to different engineering disciplines or different aspects of it and gave me some good work experience. So by the time I graduated, that paid some benefits, I had opportunities to go a lot of different places because of that experience and some of the successes that I, that I had there, but then decided that would wanted to come back to Evansville and give it a shot here working at Me Johnson. And at that point was engaged to my now wife, Laura and which I've sorry left her out of this conversation up to this point. So you're good. good. (laughs) Okay. Laura, don't be offended. It's my fault, not his. Started that career in Evansville at Mead Johnson and was there for a little over 30 years in a variety of different engineering roles and operations roles and um, ended up in my final few years as the plant manager for our manufacturing operation here in Evansville. And then what year did you retire? 2015. So I would call it retirement. It was kind of a shift in roles, though. Sure, sure. Because when you went from there, then you went to, you, you worked with your son's company, right, for a little while. Now you're at Modern Day. That's correct. There was a little stint in there as well with uh, at Resurrection Parish. So, oh, that's right. I forgot yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So Which is I, where we met. So that's another story. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, that ties up the work life, right? Or at least it gets us to where we are currently today. Let's go back then and talk about where did you meet Laura and tell us about that part of your, your vocation story. We first became aware of each other, I like to say, when we were either in seventh or eighth grade. Her cousin and my cousins lived next door to each other. So it's some holidays, I recall, we were both there. And I don't know that I had the nerve to actually go up and talk to her because I was, this, remember, this little puny guy. And she's was probably about the size she is today. So, you know, she didn't, wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been one to catch her eye by any means. But <laughs> we knew that, that that's who it was. And when we got to high school, we were in a lot of the same classes and ran around the same group. We were great friends through high school, and uh, which really ended up being quite a blessing that we developed a d- deep friendship over those four years of high school, but never in a, a dating situation. And then when we both got to Purdue, really independently, where there was no coordination there. But when you get to a campus with over 30,000 students and then you, you know, it's great to meet new people, but there's also a big comfort level of those that you know. And we spent more time there together and with groups and, and our relationship. By, by that time, I had finally grown a little more and, and um, you caught up, caught up with her <laughs> and uh, our relationship changed there. And we uh, started dating and we got engaged by about the time we were close to our s- senior year and uh, got married shortly after graduation. So you started dating at Purdue, dated for a few years, got engaged before you graduated, and then married how long after that? She actually graduated one year earlier than I, because the fact that I went through, we graduated high school the same year, but the fact that I went through this co-op program took me one year longer. 
so she was out a year earlier. We got, so it was her senior year that we got engaged. One of the things about that co-op experience too, is that there would be timeframes where I would be in Evansville working while she was in, at school at Purdue. And then I would go up there for summer school while she, she would home. come back home to work. And so it, it did teach us to live apart from each other and appreciate that each other more as, as that separation did. And uh, we still have letters that we wrote. Um, there were actually those things you wrote, put on a piece of paper and <laughs> put in the mail. And so that was a blessing to, to kind of have gone through that stage of, of our relationship development and uh, came out of it stronger and got married within a month of me graduating then. And where'd you guys get married at? Well, we got married at Resurrection, as not surprisingly. Um, kind so of she was a parishioner there as well? She was a parishioner actually here at St. Kurt Hart. She, she grew up. Uh, probably about seven or eight houses up Franklin Street from Sacred Heart. So she still has stories she talks about of her remembering different experiences here at Sacred Heart. Okay. She was in one of the first classes that got consolidated with St. Boniface and the schools when they brought those together. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I just want to admit, I had no idea that she had a connection to Sacred Heart. But I'm always telling people in Evansville that anyone who lives in the West Side has a connection to Sacred Heart's campus because someone is like, oh, I had my first communion there, or my wife used to teach there, or like you, you know, your wife used to go to school here because this campus has been consolidated into the greater St. Boniface Parish. And so three churches became one church with the most historic and the kind of biggest structure, which is just a couple of miles away, being kind of the principal location. So Sacred Heart is is not as open or active as it used to be, which many people think is sad. And, and I think it's ironic that everyone, even though this is one of the ones that has less activity, it's the one that has all these connections, all these people. So it's, it, I think it's beautiful. The, the sacred heart is still beating through its people in the church. It's great. Certainly, yeah. And, and one other connection that I failed to mention earlier is that her maiden name is Tinbarge. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, 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 well, yeah, we got to go there too. Yeah, so we're distant relatives, right? Do you actually know how we related? I do not know exactly, and I should have uh, I should have brought the family tree. I'm, yeah. I'm sure her, her father— <laughs> Her dad gave uh, me one too, so I got uh-huh. one. It's in a pile somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they were out in the St. Wendell areas where he, he started uh, his, his ancestors more. And you're a little further north than the Hopstad area, I guess, right? right? Yeah, well, but, so, but my grandpa, Tenbarge, his parents, I think, were from the St. Wendell area, too. So Laura's dad knows that and gave me the—wrote it down on a piece of paper with pencil, right? I have, it, I have it all written down now. He also gave me pictures of the tombstones of some of our uh, relatives that are buried out at, I guess, the St. Wendell Cemetery or somewhere out there. So anyway, so there's connections there too, but. Certainly, yeah. All right. So, so, the, you, so you guys got married at Resurrection and you started your work and she was, she did her thing and you, you guys had, you raised several kids together. Yeah. We were blessed with three boys. Looking back when we talk about any regrets we might've had in marriage, the, the, probably the one we have is that we didn't go ahead and be open to a fourth, but it, it worked out great. No, no. You were just hoping you could get a girl, right? <laughs> that is exactly it. And if somebody would have said wanting to control things, if somebody would have said, I can assure you this next one will be a girl, we, we would have done that. Mm. For whatever reason, we figured three boys, boy, things were a little bit crazy enough. Then that's, that was a lot, but we were blessed and had great experiences with raising three boys. But that's a, one of the pieces of advice that my wife likes to give to people. She always says, if you're even considering it at all, do it. So that's her words of wisdom. Beautiful. Yeah. So who are your kids? Just Yeah. As I mentioned, we have three boys. The oldest, Andy, who happens to be your age, Father Tyler, I think 34. 34. That's me. Yeah. Uh, my second son is Brad. 
and he's 33. And then our youngest son, Craig, is 30. Okay. And, are, and some of them are married? All three are married now. The first two married their high school sweethearts for modern day. Actually, Andy and Elise, was her maiden name was Kraft. Their first date was to the Christmas dance at modern day as a freshman. <laughs> uh, and so I still remember talking to some relatives and they were like, that just doesn't happen. That they're, you know, well, they were in high school and it, that won't last. They won't stay together. And lo and behold, now th- three children later with them, they're still very happily married and doing great things with their kids. And then Brad, our, our middle son, married also uh, his high school sweetheart. They didn't start dating quite as soon, but Katie Reddington, that was her maiden name. And they also have three children. And um, I can talk more about Brad and about how his business ventures affected my life and our family's life. and can speak to that a little bit later. And then our youngest son, Craig, well, the first two boys also went to Purdue, like Laura and I, because we brainwashed the boys as they were growing up to <laughs> to be Boilermaker fans. And I always told them, you guys can go to college anywhere you want. I'm only going to pay for you to go to Purdue, but <laughs> you can still go anywhere you want. And uh, that took pretty well with the first two. And then Craig, our youngest, he he bucked that trend a little bit, and he went to University of Evansville. At least it wasn't IU. That's that was the thing. I didn't <laughs> want to have to say that myself, but yeah, that's <laughs> that entered my mind. He had an opportunity to play golf on the golf team at University of Evansville, so that swayed him to go that way. And married a young lady from uh, the Muncie, Indiana area, as she was here going to University of Southern Indiana and and actually working for our family business. And so that's how he met her. And they also uh, live here and, and uh, have one child right now. Okay. So you have seven grandkids then? Seven grandkids. It It is quite the blessing. Their ages, there's four boys and three girls, and there are seven, six, five, and four-year-olds. And then three of them are one-year-old right now. So, oh my. Yeah. Christmas so, will be wonderful. <laughs> it will be again. <laughs> a couple of Christmases ago, one of the grandkids asked Laura, they said, well, grandma, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, well, I want three healthy grandbabies in 2021. And she got them. <laughs> and, uh, one of them was already expecting the other ones. She kind of thought were considering trying to, to have other children. So she didn't want to put too much pressure on it. But it just goes to show that a lot of times what mama wants, mama gets. That's right. Well, and I'll put a little pressure on them too. Andy and Brad, you guys have three. And you just heard your dad say that they would have gone for four. So balls in your court. <laughs> so you, you mentioned you mentioned a business venture a couple of times. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, it's interestingly, when you look at your kids growing up and you project their future and you think, you know, what they might do when they get out uh, on their own, sometimes you might even think, well, I never really even, I guess, thought this, but if someone were to say, you're going to work for one of your sons one day, guess which one it'll be? And Well, Brad would have been my third guess. And Brad was just one that, a uh, creative one that took a little bit more urging to, uh, to stay on task on things. And so, but as God's plan has way of, of working out, Brad was the one that, that I ended up working for a while. He was majoring in restaurant management at Purdue with a certificate in entrepreneurship. So he's told this story thousands of times. Some have heard it, but he entered a business planning competition with an idea he had to start a, a pizza business that was a uh, a make your own pizza type style take in his mind it was hey I love, he loved chipotle he loved pizza 
the idea came to him, put those two concepts together, and he created Aza Pizza from that. And he entered that that idea in a business planning competition while at Purdue. And uh, to our surprise and to his as well, he won first place in his division of somewhere between 30 and 40 teams of really a lot of technical teams with different entrepreneurial type ideas. And here this pizza concept won. And uh, it gave him more confidence, validated his idea. And when he graduated, went and started that business. And it took him a, a little bit time to get things worked out and, and get it started after he graduated. But he had great success initially with the first, well, with the first couple of stores that he opened here in Evansville. And go back now to where here I was working at Me Johnson at the time, trying to be supportive of me, but didn't have any time because I was working way too many hours at Me Johnson at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But when I saw this, we saw the success he was having and needing some more resources to really continue to grow that and leverage that, uh, made the decision, well, instead of waiting a few more years like I was planning on before I left Me Johnson, I said this window of opportunity may not stay open very long. So I I left Me Johnson and went and started with him and it was in 2015 to help really standardize operations. He had two stores, had no real employee handbook of how they operate or no standardized work and didn't really have any kind of preventive maintenance kind of program, how to take care of equipment, kind of literally run to failure. And, you know, oh, that unit stopped running. I wonder why. Oh, maybe we need to change this filter or do this or that. So I came in to, to try to help bring some structure to that and over then got those those type of systems in place. But then also as he started to expand to additional stores, I oversaw, worked with him and with architects and engineering or construction firms to, to build new stores. So I helped build out nine new different stores to get them up and running and Describe my my job was to take the ideas out of Brad's head and put them on paper and get them in front of engineers and and con- contractors to to make them a reality. So, so you translated the the artistic mind to the engineering type, right? So because you could bridge the gap, he was your son, so you could understand him, and you your wheelhouse was the engineering side anyway. It, it did. It, it's amazing again how God works and puts different people in place with those different skill sets, and it was yeah, it worked out very well for us. So uh, did you have an official title? Working for your son? Did he give you a title? Yeah. He let me choose my own, I guess. Uh, Director <laughs> of facilities is uh, sort of what that, that's what my title was. Oh, you could have gotten, you could have gotten a lot better title. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't want to push it too hard. <laughs> the Grand Poobah of A-Zip Pizza. We yeah. just, yeah. <laughs> well, my wife has uh, Mama Zip was her title. So unofficially I was Papa Zip, I guess. Uh, okay. Well, so. there you go. There you go. It's good. Yeah. That, that opportunity of, of working with him, not only him, but then he brought back his older brother who had a mechanical engineering degree, Andy did, and then went, worked for General Mills for a while. And uh, in the meantime, got his MBA at Vanderbilt and uh, had a great career there going and, and did very well at Vanderbilt. But Andy heard the call to come back to Evansville and be with closer to family and uh, use some of his skills there. And so he came back and is helping. He right now he's the co-CEO of running with with Brad running Azip, and then eventually uh, their younger brother Craig, who was in banking at up in the Chicago area, and also saw the opportunity to get back to Evansville, come back with family, and came back as well. So, and then my wife was 
the uh, first employee, I guess she, well, we call her employee. She, we didn't get paid for a while, but she was <laughs> uh, doing the books. And so she's, she's been the bookkeeper since day one. And, and uh, she's the one that came up with the uh, Aza pizza name. That's, that's her one uh, credit that Brad gives her uh, repeatedly. And so then here we had the whole family along with some others that were in our home office of running the day-to-day, running the business. And it was just a, a real blessing to be in that situation to work with family and watch them develop, especially watch the boys and how they interacted with, with other uh, vendors and employees and, and just see the growth in them and, and watch that happen. I can recall a number of times sitting there in an open workspace that we had and just kind of watching things and thinking, this is a pretty unique opportunity to be here and, and watch, watch that all develop. So it was a great stage of my life that came at a, at a good time to really help him and, and watch that business take off. So you're a dad, right? And, and you've been successful in your career uh, moving up in the same company you've been working for for decades, managing a plant. And then your son is the, was the least likely of the three that you thought would be starting a company that you'd be working for, right? He's now got this idea, which takes first place at your alma mater, and then he implements it, Right. And as he's implementing, he says, Dad, I could use some help and you make your own title up, but come in here and help me see what to do here. And as you're helping him start and continue to run and expand his company, you're getting to watch like from the the top tier, right? And look down on all this going on here. And what was that? What was that like as a dad? Yeah, as a dad, it was some very proud moments. All of my boys have had their their successes and their talents that I've been proud of, obviously, throughout the years. Brad gets a lot of the attention these days and, uh, you know, rightfully so he's, he's done a, a lot of good things to earn that, but to be in a position to watch them, develop, watch him and how he managed and ran that company and how he treated employees and, and how all the boys now, as they look at strategic decisions about what they want AZIP to become, it's not franchise and go out to create hundreds of stores. It's, making an impact in the community and having a great work experience and growth opportunities for their employees who the vast majority are young high school or college students that are using this as a, as a way to make some money and, uh, and learn some skills. And they do great work doing that. And of, of a lot of the accolades that they've received as a company or as individuals within the company, probably the one I'm most proud of is Evansville. I get one of the Evansville magazines that started a, a, a new category of recognizing businesses, which was the company that, that gives back. And when they initiated that award, AZIP won that award the very inaugural year of it as the, the best company to give back. So that speaks in my mind to their mindset and to the, what the intent of how they're trying to make an impact for people's lives and not just about how much they can revenue they can bring in and Beautiful. That's great. Well, and nothing else matters more, right? Actually, if I, if I can say, if you, so you had said like, was that 2014 that that started or 2015? When did you say that was? Yeah. Brad opened the first store in 2014 and then I joined in 2015 after he had two stores that were up and running. Okay. So it was the summer of one of those years. And I think it was the summer of 15. So I had been assigned as a seminarian to Father Phil Crowlin at Resurrection, which was your parish. And uh, I was assigned there for the summer assignments. I was living with Father Phil in his rectory and then doing ministry with him, with the exception of the, like, the three weeks where he went to Israel. And he said, Tyler, you're in charge of the church, right? <laughs> Which was kind of a joke because, you know, I'm a seminary. I haven't, I haven't, no, I've got nothing I can do, right? But 
Anyways, and so the, the first day I got there, I brought my bags to the rectory, and he said, well, we got work to do. And so we got on a tractor, didn't yeah, he, right yeah, away? Right, I still right. well, remember that exactly. Good. All right. Well, that's all I'm <laughs> talking about. That country boy can drive that tractor. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we pulled into Resurrections at, near the office, and we pulled up to uh, – it was a, a little tractor like with a loader on the front, and then there was also a, a, a truck full of mulch. And you and Laura were both, were both there. And so you were the first two people that I met at Resurrection when I was assigned there. And I think that, I think Laura had like a visor on or something and she was on the ground moving the mulch around to make it look pretty around the plants. And you were scooping it off of the truck into the bucket and vice versa. And then Father Phil brought me up and I said, we said hello. And um, then you, you gave me the tractor and you just dumped, dumped things into the tractor's bucket and I moved it on or whatever we did. But anyways, long story short, at the end of that, you handed me AZIP uh, gift cards, like, like the little like index business card size things. And I had never heard of or been to AZIP Pizza. I mean, this is also like the first year or so that it was there, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I took those and I thought, oh, that's nice. I can get pizza. Well, I didn't know that you, that your family started and ran it. <laughs> so, so I went and I, I told Father Phil, I was like, oh, he, he picked a pretty good pizza place. And he's like, Tyler, they own it. <laughs> Thank you, Father Phil. Um, God rest his soul. Anyway, so that was, that was when I first met you was when you were, your family was just getting that started. And then also when you were transitioning over and, and helping with them too. That's a great story. I'm glad you shared it. I didn't, I'm impressed that you even remembered that Laura and I were the first. Oh yeah. No, first actually, met. That's yeah. great to know. I absolutely remember that. Yeah. Anyways. So the reason I bring that up is that, as you said, that what you're most proud of in your sons is that, is their connection to community service, right? That not only do they want to like give back to the community by sponsoring teams or having give back nights where people, you know, buy a pizza and they make a donation back to causes or whatever those things are, but also even with the employees, right? Like you, they see their employees, like high schoolers and college students as someone who they need to be able to pay, make their car payments so they can go continue to play their sports or get an additional job when they get to college or move on or whatever, right? And so I think that's really neat is that I met you when you were transitioning into your role with them and you were serving at your church, right? Right. And the, the first time I heard of AZIP was whenever you guys, you parents were in the community serving. It, isn't it amazing? We couldn't, we couldn't dream this stuff up, that's, could we? Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's a gift. It's yeah, a gift. Yeah. And I, and I look at the impact that AZIP's had, even on our own family, my youngest son, Craig, never would have met Abby. We never would have had Lainey, this seventh grandchild, if not for AZIP and we get invited to a fair number of weddings, Laura and I do, of AZIP, former AZIP employees that we've gotten to know that have met through AZIP. So it's just astonishing when you really step back and look what God can do with something as simple as a little business and the impact it's had on so many young people's lives with over 250 employees or so that AZIP has now, not to mention how many they've had through the years. It's an awesome thing to step back and look at what, how, what impact it's had. That's great. Well, and I can't imagine interviewing one of your sons, you know, 30 years from now, right? Whenever their kids are grown and they're looking at what this, what this all's been and what it, where it's at today, you know, 30 years from now, um, what that's gonna be like for them too. It's yeah. Really neat. You've mentioned Laura many times. She's a, a wonderful lady. Since you have two vocations, so you're, you're living your, your first vocation of marriage and then your second vocation of the diaconate, which you just got ordained here recently. Let's talk about your marriage vocation first. What would you say have, have been some of the, the biggest blessings of being married or, um, or of the vocation of marriage for you and for your wife? First of all, I have to admit, I never viewed marriage as a vocation as a young person. Maybe I wasn't listening. Maybe I uh, just was too caught up in other things of the world. But I was blessed to, to have friends and have Laura be such a close friend and 
have a great example of my own parents and, and what uh, a married life would a successful married life looked like. And we had a, a number of things in common with our, whether academically and faith-wise. And so we were always very compatible. When you say it wasn't so much a vocation, do you mean by that you didn't hear it as a calling, more or less you... You felt the love, you saw it make sense, and therefore you followed it. Is that what that was? I think that's the way to say it. Yeah, I didn't, whether it was at that time, the church wasn't speaking as much about marriage as a vocation in those terms, or I just wasn't listening. I know, you know, today I'm much more aware of that view of clearly of marriage as a vocation, uh, whether it's my lack of maturity or whatever, didn't, didn't see it that way. We just were very happy together and had similar aspirations and dreams, and it, it worked out wonderfully for us. To a young couple who's out there listening, or to a young person who's out there listening, feel like they've got a call to marriage, what would be your biggest piece of advice or some of your pieces of advice, either look, looking at marriage, like choosing that or saying yes to that if God's calling them to it, or as they're entering marriage, how to approach that with their spouse? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because as a deacon, I've been asked to participate in some marriage preparation and actually was asked to uh, marry a couple this coming summer. So I'm already starting to think about how I do that guidance to them. And I think I would start with saying, listen to God. Is this really, is this what he's calling you to do? I can say that I didn't do that. It worked out well for me, but it's easy to just move, move along and just feel like, yeah, that's, that's the next thing when the next step in a relationship but uh, I would encourage young people to be very intentional and, and pray about what God might be asking them to do and then have discussions with the potential spouse or, and, and look at expectations that each have for that, what that life might look like together. Uh, I feel like looking back where Laura and I might have had challenges over the years, it was regarding did we voice our expectations appropriately and, and talk through whether it was a little thing or, or bigger things, that were we aligned and, and communicating about expectations, expectations of how you feel loved. And fortunately, Laura and I were introduced years ago to the five languages of love. And I think that's a lot about expectations. I learned early on that her love language was not receiving gifts. I, I still remember the first year we were married, I got her um, pearl necklace for Christmas as the gift that I thought would be important to her, she returned those and got a winter coat instead because it was a lot more practical. <laughs> so that got me off the hook early. I don't have to worry about buying gifts for her. That That's not her love language. Well, we didn't put it in those terms at that young married age, but that's that's kind of what it was, is understanding that she feels loved when when I spend time with her or do some tasks that do her uh, to-do list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's becoming even more and more challenging in my situation. Well, over the years, it was through working at Me Johnson a lot of hours and being involved with the, with the boys, or now as trying to maintain a couple of roles as a deacon and a president of a high school. And she's always been incredibly patient with me and aligned with, she knows that we're in this together. And so while her love language is this time together or me doing some acts of service for her, she's very patient with me to, and, and knows that sometimes it takes a while to get those. For those who are listening and are, do feel a call to marriage, 
the thing that Deacon Dan has not said um, that I think is there is he, there was also an absence of doubt, right? So um, whenever, whenever you're feeling a call in any vocation in life, or that God, even if, even if God is just, you feel like God is calling you to take this summer job if you're a high school or something, right? Uh, or a college student. If, if there's a lack of doubt, a lack of fear, a lack of anxiety, that typically is also a sign that God might be paving the way. And so if you're feeling a lot of resistance uh, when, you're trying to do, when you're trying to do something, it's because the door is maybe, maybe it's locked on purpose, right? Like don't, don't break it down, you know? And, and maybe there is a case where it is, you need to break it down, but that's more fewer and far between, or that's a very kind of a different thing. But so then let, let's shift gears now. So, so one, one thing that, um, that we've now talked about is that you didn't really approach marriage from a, um, vocational perspective of saying, God, are you calling me intentionally, right? I think you were thinking that or subconsciously praying for that in your heart of hearts. And I think she was to her when it worked out, right? But on the other side of things, so you felt a call to the, to the diaconate, which is a second vocation built on top of your marriage one where you're serving the church. Now to that one, did you hear a call and what was that like? That I think I have matured in my spiritual life to the point that I understood about what a call could be like. That happened probably in about my mid-40s. From the time we started having children, mid-20s, through the 30s, into the 40s, things were just busy with life. Raising them, being very intentional about how we raised them, and the boys, and wanting to be very actively involved in their lives. And I know I did enough things, maybe inadequately as a father, but one thing I felt like I always was very intentional about is how much time I spent with the boys and whether it was when they were young, growing up, playing anything with them, help teach them their academics or through their, their faith development things as, as little ones. I was fortunate that my job was not so demanding that I, that I could make the time and I did make the time for them and, and prioritize my life that way. And, and I think that that pays off, you know, in spades when, when a father takes that time to be in, um, intentional with those decisions. Plus, that's when I also started to expand into some other Catholic causes that were important to me around Catholic education, whether it was through Modern Day High School or through Resurrection Parish in the Education Commission or parish council, um, different things at modern day, things related to Catholic Education Foundation, just being open to being involved in furthering our parish life and, and Catholic education. So those were my priorities, that and my, and my boys. And by the time then, in the mid-40s, I was asked to make a Curcio weekend. And that's when I think my perspectives shifted from just doing stuff as a Catholic and being involved in organizations to one of developing a relationship with Christ. I think up to that point, it was more, more these get doing things. When going through Curcio and, and focusing on developing that relationship it, with Christ, it also opened me to listen to him about what else he might be calling me to do. Now, while I was still employed at Me Johnson and a lot of work-related distractions there, um, but at least I was starting to, to mature that way. And I think it was around that time that I can recall sitting in Mass, listening to a homily, 
and starting to get critical about what I was hearing, perhaps mm. <laughs> thinking n- not to be negative about a, a homily that was delivered, but one that was like, hmm, I've, I might have said this or I might have gone that way. And um, I think it was uh, even a conversation that I had with you years ago that when I mentioned that to you, Father Tyler, that you even said, yeah, that was probably how some of those seeds start of having that perspective. So, and, and then I was in some faith sharing group, Laura and I were with uh, friends and they would, for whatever reason, started referring to me as Deacon Dan. Maybe mm-hmm. they again saw things in me that I didn't. And I laughed them off, if nothing, or brushed them off at that early stages. And I, I think one of the resistances at that time was I knew that a deacon, if their wife passed away, could not remarry. And being at that stage in my life, I, I saw that as more of a showstopper. And didn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that, that kind of maybe put that, maybe those thoughts to the back burner as though my, my spiritual life matured and getting closer to the age of 62 also made me realize, okay, that's not so important. And that became a non-factor. And I even think about how God worked to change that. And I am so blessed that Lars part of this ministry but I, I can accept that if God has a different plan, that, that this is something that, that I can still move forward with. So it, it became a non-issue. But anyway, that's, that's a little bit of, of some of those early thoughts about that, listening to that call. Yeah. So, if it was, so you went to a Curcio retreat where it's, uh, for those who've never been on a Curcio weekend, it's Thursday through Sunday, and it's an, an intentional encounter with Jesus and his church. And so it's conferences about you understanding yourself better as a human being and as a son or daughter of God, and you understanding the Lord better as your savior, and then understanding how the church then can journey together with one another towards salvation. And when people leave those weekends, it's overnight and it's chock full of talks, and there's never a moment that's not planned, <laughs> that you're not engaged in doing something. When you leave that weekend, when people leave that weekend, they often are totally on fire for their faith. And they usually will, will group weekly after that with a, the group that they sat with at their table or other people that, are, that went on Crucios too. Anyways, and so you at that retreat weekend met the Lord in a more serious way than previously you had done in your life. And so what I heard you say was that that's when you heard a call to be a more intentional Christian in relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord, instead of kind of just being a member of the church, checking boxes and doing good works and plugging in, Right. Certainly, that's how I came out of that that weekend, and being more open to what a full life in the church and, and that relationship can look like. Right. Yeah. And so, and so yes, yeah, so it's, it's not surprising. Saint John Paul II was famous, was famous for saying this. He said that everyone has a vocation. Their primary vocation is to holiness in Jesus. Right. And so, the first thing you've got to do after you're baptized is to grow in your relationship with Christ. And only if you're moving in that direction will you then hear another call to marriage, priesthood, diaconate, religious life, whatever else, right? But your first thing is you got to do is you got you to be able to hear Jesus's voice. If you can't hear his voice, you're not moving toward him. There's, n- there, there's no reason to even look for another call, right? And so perhaps maybe that's why some of the vocational language we've been talking about with the marriage piece, you didn't know the words, right? Because, because you just weren't there yet in your own spiritual maturity. But in your mid-40s, this retreat kind of opened that up. And so then you started hearing the Lord say, to look at being more seriously engaged with the church in the diaconate through conversations and nudges and thoughts in your own head until those came to fruition later in your 50s when you felt like you were, were being called and you could answer with a wholehearted yes. Right. And I think that one of the key things that you mentioned there that Pope John Paul mentioned is listening 
and being open to listening. And until I left Me Johnson and went to work for Brad with AZIP, that gave me a chance to listen. I am convinced that if I would have stayed at Me Johnson in that mindset, I wouldn't have been in a place that I could listen to that that call because the demands were less. I mean, it was at that next stage of my life. And as God's plan was playing out, then there were opportunities of diaconate classes starting up again. And it, then I was more in that position to say, okay, these things are now starting to line up. And it sounds like I need to, to really listen and give serious consideration to this call to the diaconate, take my, my faith and my relationship to, to another level. Whenever you first started thinking about a diaconate, what did that conversation look like with Laura? It didn't surprise her because over the years had, you know, shared some of these, these other little thoughts with her. And she was part of these faith sharing Bible study groups that, you know, the, that banter would go around a little bit. And, and I think she knew enough about how being involved in the church and in the Catholic community was important to me. So I don't think it was a shock that that was a natural progression of where we might go. Um, but it did require us to to be very much more intentional in, th- in talking through that about what that could look like and the impact it would have on our our relationship and our family situation um, and how that pathway could would affect the rest of our family and our grandkids and all those things. But she, in her normal, incredibly supportive way um, and being a partner in this in this ministry, she was very open to it as well, and knew that there would be sacrifices along the way, but was was willing to make those. Yeah, so I, I think that's actually one of the things that we do well in our diocese is that when men are going through the diaconate formation program, which you did, was it five years? Is that right? Yes, from five the, years. Yeah. So, so there, there's at various stages, maybe even every single weekend that you guys have formation. The wives are invited to come for at least part of the weekend. Is that right? Or certain weekends of the year? Just certain weekends. Not Some dioceses require the wives to be there oh, okay. for all of the formation. If that were the case in this diocese, I think it's safe to say I would not be sitting here as a deacon. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, and I wasn't alone in that. And just from the comments of other of my deacon brothers that were going through this, it's it's a lot to ask. It's, it's enough to ask all the things that you're going to ask from that wife in that ministry. Some wives could be would be very engaged in that; others would not. Right? Yeah, yeah. Sitting and taking theology classes or history of the church from the medieval period or something is not really a <laughs> some people's cup of tea on a Saturday morning or all day on a Saturday. So <laughs> that's exactly right. But but I think what we do well with that is is that by by inviting them in, it shows that we we understand that you've already been called and are living out a vocation in the church to marriage and family life, right? And that comes first, and so. So earlier you had mentioned that if your wife was to pass away when you were in your 40s and you had already become a deacon, you couldn't get married again because now you're living a vocation to the diaconate, which is in service to the church. And so that's why you can become a deacon after you're married, but not get married after you're a deacon, right? Because you're committing yourself, you said, first to Laura and then whatever children that God gives you. Now you're committing yourself to the church in addition to your family. And if for some reason your wife passes, then now you're now you're dedicated to the church, Right. And so I think it's important that we as a church, I think it's important people know that, but also invite the wives into that process and say, we understand that you had him first, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, and he, he, was, he is yours, right? You are his. And in addition to that, he's also going to try to serve the church in the ways he can. 
most most permanent deacons still have full-time jobs that are not working for a Catholic high school. And so they're they're busy eight to five. And so they can't do ministry of taking communion to nursing homes on a Tuesday or visiting those in the sick in the hospital on a Friday afternoon or, or even on a weekend if they've got families things. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not important work and we don't need their help. And especially with you, like with the gifts you have from business, plugging those into a Catholic ministry, which is important on the west side of Evansville, is incredibly fruitful and helpful. Yeah. And again, it comes back to God's plan and being open to it and acknowledging that I could have never dreamed this up in my life, uh, you know, to see how the experiences that he provided for me along the way with different Catholic causes, understanding how different Catholic organizations work, being passionate about Catholic education because for so many reasons of, of what I experienced and, and the the benefits I saw of that and, and him lining all of that up and in the timing that he played it out for me made made my decisions easy actually in the in the scheme of things relative to I think and look at young men that you work with today that are thinking of becoming a priest and and discerning that and that decision I don't know that I had the maturity and the courage to to make that kind of a tough decision at the age that these young men are making it versus for me I I'd been blessed with this wonderful wife and, and wonderful children and grandchildren. And this was just a lot easier of a of a progression of my faith that I could still live it in a way while having that other vocation as well. So I, I got the best of both worlds. And maybe it's because God didn't think I had the courage to make the tough decisions. So he made them easy for me and lined them up timing-wise to make it apparent that's what I should do. The gift that I, that I see in you and I hear in your voice is the gratitude, is that you're not arrogant about God having taken care of you. You're, you're humbled by it. So here you are now in this chapter of your life, which is you've been ordained a permanent deacon this past summer, and you also began your role as president at Modern Day High School. Can you tell us a little about how you transitioned into that position uh, or maybe about your vision for what you'd like to, to bring to or do as part of that community? Yeah, when I think about my transition into the role at Modern Day, again, it was God's timing and trying to be open to His plan. As I mentioned, I had been given a lot of opportunities to be involved in our Catholic community. And as I was going through the diaconate program and the position at Modern Day came open initially back in 2019, when I was fairly early still in the diaconate formation process, I was approached and asked if I would consider putting my name in, in the hat for that position back three or four years ago. And I did prayerfully consider that at that time, but my first response was, no, I'm going to become a deacon. You know, why would I do that? And the response of, that would be a great position for a deacon to be in, in as a head of our Catholic high school. That opened my eyes because I didn't view it that way. Again, the lens that I saw of me as a deacon was more on a weekend at the Ambo delivering a homily or out doing those other sacraments or those type of things. But I, I hadn't considered the fact that this role at Modern Day could be a part of my diaconate ministry and, and a, what a wonderful opportunity to influence and help guide a Catholic institution that affects 500 plus students. The learning, at least at that stage, was, wow, this really could be a possibility. However, at that time, as I prayerfully considered that, and I looked at still being heavily immersed in helping Aza 
grow and get its feet on the ground. Having at that point three or four grandchildren, having the years of diaconate study ahead of me and trying to be a, a father and a, and a husband, I just said, this, I just don't think I can do this. It's, I don't think God's calling me at this time to do that. And so I respectfully declined to, to pursue that. Fast forward a few years later and the position became open again. And once again, in God's timing and his plan, it made a lot more sense. I was finishing up the diaconate studies, had transitioned out of AZIP and was actually working, doing a little more work in our parish because COVID changed the, the trajectory of, of AZIP's business. So it, it afforded me some time to do things at our, at our parish. And, and all those things then made a lot more sense. And again, prayerfully discerning that, put my name in the hat and was asked then to take on that role. That's great. Yeah. Any particular things about the vision for Modern Day that you have noticed yourself wanting to work toward that you see kind of welling up from the community that you're helping to lead? As we look at our strategic plan for Modern Day, that is now work that we're really immersed in is to try to lay that out. And we know it's going to be along the pillars first and foremost of the growth of our students in their Catholic faith. And we're working with teams of people to define that, identify what the biggest priorities of of that will be. We've had some really fruitful discussions with some of our committees. In my mind, the main purpose of Catholic education is to prepare our students to leave modern day to get to heaven. I mean, that's that's what it's really all about. And that's a, a huge responsibility that we have in preparing them because we know when they leave our confines of modern day, it's it's a tough world out there. They're going to be inundated by the, the culture. And what we have to do is to prepare them by understanding the Catholic teachings, why the church teaches what it teaches, not just here, go memorize this and, and know that. They have to clearly understand that. And we have to prepare them to defend their faith in a hostile environment at time when they leave. So as we look at how that plays out, we know each student is at a different place in their journey and their relationship with Christ. We have to help them grow in that relationship and understand him, understand our teachings, and take advantage of the growth opportunities we have. We don't have one set criteria that when every child graduates from modern day, they're going to be at a certain exact point in their faith. They have to be further along than when they first came to us. So as we look at individually trying to provide opportunities for students and and help them grow in their relationship with Christ, that's one of the priorities is to to give them the right kind of opportunities to help them each grow. Excellent. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is you want the students who come to modern day, wherever they are, to be met where they are and brought along further, especially in their relationship with Jesus Christ and in their faith. So when they leave, they're ready to head into the world more equipped to handle what they're going to face. Exactly. The other aspect is that we, we can't forget that our parents send their kids to school also to get a great education and, and the reality of preparing them for their future endeavors in the world. And so we're not going to lose sight that we have to keep getting better academically. We have to continue to provide them with opportunities to grow in their social development. All those things are going to be important. But what we know we're uniquely situated to do is to help them grow in that faith and make them strong and, and ready to, to go out and defend it and to, to spread that gospel and evangelize in their environment that they find themselves in. 
Excellent. Yeah, yes. To put it even more simply then, Catholic school, school comes second, Catholic comes first, right? It's got to be both, right? Right. It has to be a good educational institution that's got a great community, but it also must be faith-oriented, right? Or, or, or why would it exist, right? That's right. And, and that's why I've commented to people before, our faith is going to be first, and, and that is, it has to be our primary objective. We have to be able to show parents that this is the value that, that they'll get out of sending their, their children to a Catholic high school, to modern day, because there's a lot of other choices they can make. We're going to make, keep that as primary. But at the same time, we're going to continue to get better academically and we know other activities are a big part of their growth at modern day. So we're never going to apologize for being the best we can be, whether it's in sports and or uh, the fine arts or any of those. Those are going to continue to to be a, something that we want to provide and be the help our students be the best they can be in those areas as well. And and you've got a lot to write on right now because the this past year and this year alone, there was a wrestling state championship. And a band, marching band, state championship, and a football state championship. So yeah, so in twenty twenty two, three state championships. That's yeah. Don't be sorry for that. No, we we aren't going to apologize for that. Or but uh, we want to also want to keep our focus on uh, on why we exist. So to wrap up here, you've been a deacon for four months, and you're heading toward our first your first Christmas as a deacon. Is there anything that's happened in the last four months that has been especially like moving or rewarding? Um, now that you have been ordained, like something you've been able to preach at or some content you've been able to share from the pulpit or some ministry situation that you've found that's been really kind of a, a great blessing or or maybe just looking forward to something at Christmas time. There have been many blessings along the way that I didn't anticipate. One of the ones that surprised me most, I guess, is shortly after ordination and, and even those first masses of being vested and being there giving communion. I'd been an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion for years. But when I became ordained and was vested and, and distributing communion, it took on a different sense for me and closeness and bond of providing our Lord in the, in the Eucharist than I anticipated. And it struck me then, and it still does even today sometime. So there have been some little surprises like that. The blessing to be able to baptize infants that I've done. Those are blessings that I hadn't uh, anticipated. I could not anticipate the the joy that comes with those. And I do realize I'm in a unique situation at Modern Day. Uh, being there as a deacon, have been able to speak to the kids uh, in ways that perhaps I wouldn't have as a as a lay person, and just been so thankful that they've embraced me. And when I see them out in public or see the students and and to hear them greet me. Uh, Hey, Deacon Dan, and it's it's been a and a joy that I sense that they truly do appreciate me being there in that role, and uh, it's it's been a, a blessing. Yeah, yeah. So, so in addition to your role in like kind of a governance of the school, um, you're also kind of, kind of doing some spiritual governance too, which not everybody who's a leader gets to do that. You've been deputized, ordained, set aside by the church for spiritual leadership. In addition to that, you've been given a administrative job or you've taken an administrative job to do both. And so you got to kind of bring the two worlds together in your own being because you, you can bring those together from, from your background, your position, and, and then also from your call, which is a, a great gift. It is a gift. And it's, it's one I think the students do appreciate. And my hope is that they see me in that role and, and that maybe does have them thinking of their 
their future path and, and more in, through that vocational lens than a, more of a traditional lens that they might have seen it through. So that is one of my hopes and prayers is that, that I can impact the young people in that way. So putting on the vocational lens seems to be the theme of today's conversation. Deacon Dan, thank you very much for sharing your, uh, your story and stories and your perspective with us as a, as a Catholic man, as a husband and a father, as a businessman and a, and a mentor of businessmen and a father of businessmen, and also now as a, a man called to the diaconate and service of the church and leading one of our communities. We appreciate it. Thank you. Um, it's my pleasure. I'm blessed to be able to be in this position. Would you like to lead us in a closing prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Good and gracious Father, thank you for the many blessings as we approach Christmas and the coming of your Son. We ask you to help us to receive him with joy and receive him in a way that helps us to, to grow in our relationship with him. Thank you for the House of Discernment and the work that Father Tyler is doing with our young people. Help all of us, whether ordained or laypersons, to grow the life of vocations and open young people up to see their future opportunities through the lens of vocations and help them to discern what you are calling them to do so that they can do your will in their lives. Give them the courage and the faith to do that. Ask you continue to bless all the work that, that Father Tyler does with the young people and be with all of us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.